0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. You might be interested in planting native Aussie grasses for habitat and amenity purposes. Or maybe it's something you haven't put a whole lot of thought into until you read this episode's title. Either way, this episode has been designed to give you the information you need to approach these plants, whether you're a home gardener or a pro landscaper looking for some new options in your plant palette. Our guest is a Twitter friend of mine, Ben Cortis, who's an ecologist, botanist, and bush regenerator that works with a range of native grass species around Melbourne. G'day Ben, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be a cracker. So... I'd just like to get a little bit of context for these plants. How have native grasses been used by indigenous people in the past
1: and in the present? Indigenous people, yeah. I will, it's not that kind of stuff is not something I'm an expert on, but some of it's been documented in books like Dark Emu and stuff, that in some areas indigenous people built houses out of thatch from grasses. They'd pile up grasses to in sheaves to harvest the grain in some areas, particularly sort of western New South Wales is where I've heard of that being done, or western Queensland, that sort of in inland plains there. Grass, some of our big, big, tough native grasses are quite, I think, good for weaving to make. I think they've been used to make string baskets, nets, that kind of stuff. And they also grazed them, which is, you know, we don't think of Indigenous people as pastoralists, but I mean, they did manage... Grassy areas with fire to create n- nice new growth that would bring in the kangaroos and wallabies, and then they could harvest the kangaroos and wallabies themselves. Mm. So those are some of the different things, and pretty much similar to what it was. Grasses have been used for traditionally in Europe, really.
0: Mm. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, grasses have certain characteristics that make those sorts of acti- activities, you know, possible. That's right. So what sort of different shapes and sizes do our native grasses in particular come in, and what are some of the different varieties that we can use in Victorian manatee gardens?
1: So typically a lot of our native grasses come in what we call tussocks, so tussock grasses of various types. And in other countries they will sometimes call these things like bunch grasses or bundle grasses, but it just means that instead of that low, creeping, ground-covering, lawn-type grasses that a lot of people are familiar with, they grow as big, upright, you know, think of a cl- a clump of bamboo. Bamboo is, in fact, a grass, but in miniature. Mm. And so we do have a few of the lower ones that can almost make a good lawn and creeping grasses, but a lot of them are big, robust tussocks. So we think about common tussock grasses, which are scientifically called Poa labiliadarii or Poa lab for short. Kangaroo grass so those are two of the biggest and most common, and the tussock grasses are a winter-growing grass. They like wetter spots, and they make use of winter being wetter. Kangaroo grass likes a bit of more heat, different, slightly different metabolism, so it grows in s- more through summer. And there's a lot of other, you know, like spear grasses are quite decorative, and they grow well in dry and harsh spots usually. Wallaby grasses can be a bit like that too. There's one called silky bluegrass, which is never actually very common in melbourne until people started planting it around for reeveage i think it but it's a, a nice looking summer growing grass that's much more common common up to through new south wales and queensland so yeah and we do have a few little low growing grasses that are good for you can i, I mean i've got a native grass lawn and some things like red leg grass and weeping grass good for that yeah and you know people who grow lawns typically think of something like couch grass or buffalo or kikuyu which is that real running creeping grass that goes underground above ground we do have a couple like that like mat grass but it's really not as vigorous and you wouldn't probably wouldn't get a good lawn out of it so yeah so when people think of some of the typical garden uses for grass you can certainly use Australian native grasses but you know don't think neatly mowed lawns necessarily is the easiest or best use of them. So it's a
0: different thing to like a cooch or a Kaikuyu or something like that?
1: Yeah, most of them are very different to that. And, you know, typically you get gaps between them because they're these discrete tussocks of grass. Mm. And, you know, people managing lawns don't like those gaps of bare ground. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) a lot of them, I mean, you can, some of the others will fill the gaps over time and that's okay. But, yeah. They have different uses. Hmm.
0: So what does your lawn look like with a native lawn? So you said that, you know, you're not mowing it and there may be gaps in between, but can you paint a bit of a picture for our listeners who maybe have never seen a native lawn before? Like, what does that look like?
1: Well, okay. it. it I'd call it a rough lawn or possibly like a um, almost like a meadow. It's, it's not your golf green, which is like immaculate, one species of grass, hard to tell it hmm. apart from astroturf sometimes, you know, it's... <laughs> Like the grasses are a little bit tussocky or they tuft up a bit, so it's uneven. there are gaps although the species I'm using fill those in okay. I let a few weeds and native flowers and things grow through it as when I can herbs that sort of stuff so yeah, I don't mm. mow it that much I mow it keep it under control as it were, but when you don't mow a lawn you get you know the the spiders make their burrows and webs through it and you know the um native finches come to eat this grass seeds and whatever, and it becomes more of a living thing rather than this sort of empty green space that I think a lot of lawns are
0: mm. I'd love to talk about some of the habitat and food services that that lawn is providing, but i I think we'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to ask before that what are some of the other aesthetic functions that native grasses can play other than sort of a native lawn?
1: yeah well. As it's a sort of like an ecological alternative to the traditional lawn, but that actually takes quite, I mean, I spent a lot of time preparing that and getting that going because you really have to replace everything else to get a native lawn going, you know, over a whole slab of area. Whereas if you're just doing garden beds um, and borders and so on, some of the really big native grasses can look great as a, you know, a, a kind of a feature plant or a background to your shrubs or that sort of thing. So. One of the things is, if you get a bunch of A native grass, some of them, they look quite spectacular when they're going to flower and seed, and you have these big waving masses of these sort of feathery, often silvery-coloured sort of seed heads waving in the wind. It looks quite good. But then the grass leaves also have their own colours, so kangaroo grass is fairly well known for... as it it's a summer growing grass. So it stays green through summer quite well, unless it's a very dry year. And it'll, as summer goes on and you go into autumn, it gradually turns a reddish brown color, which is, you know, you think grass is browning off in summer, they turn that, you know, straw yellow, but it doesn't. It's much, it stays green longer and then it turns a more of a red brown. So it's a, a very different set of colors. Silky bluegrass is a pretty bluish color, as the name suggests. And some of them kangaroo grass, even when it's, not browning off, can sometimes be quite bluish. So you get all these different subtle colours. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, having one or two of them out won't work. They're not big enough to really show off like that. But you get a, a half a dozen or a few dozen of them, and it starts to have an impact and fills a space quite well.
0: Mm, I agree, especially in the wind as they're sort of waving around. They look really quite beautiful when you have a lot of them there.
1: Yeah. You, you see the ripples of the wind go through. It's almost like watching water or something, you know?
0: mm-hmm yeah yeah totally so we can put them in the borders so can you explain what do you mean by putting them in the garden border
1: okay so say you have a a big garden bed you know at the front of your house or in the park or whatever gardens you're, you work you work with you might be putting some big flowering shrubs in there natives or not doesn't matter really which are sort of like people like bigger plants plants with bigger flowers, grass flowers are tiny, you barely even see them, so why would you bother? But they sort of define a border. So you have this big, a row of the bushy tussocks that, you know, depending on the species, they might be up to 30 centimetres high, up to one and a half metres high, including the seed heads and all. So there's quite a bit of range there and they can be quite wide. So you've, you know, if you think of things like pampas grass, which is actually an ecological weed that we have a lot of problems with. We have natives that do that kind of thing and don't cause that problem.
0: That's very interesting, isn't it? Because why would we use a pampas grass when we have a native plant that could do a similar sort of a function? But I guess I, I do get it because pampas grass is quite a beautiful specimen.
1: It is, yeah. Or, you know, there's, what is it, penicetum, the, some of the feather grasses and so on. Yeah, same kind of thing. They occasionally become weeds. They're not as bad as pampas grass, actually. but And they look great, but then we have some pretty similarly good-looking native ones, which have other benefits in terms of, you know, they provide services to wildlife and that sort of thing, and possibly go better in our climate.
0: Mm. So can you explain what some of those habitat and sort of food services are that grasses can provide for wildlife?
1: Yeah. So just the structure of a big grass tussock, it's, it's like a refuge for a lot of small animals. So we have uh, some native animals like tussock skinks, which is just a little lizard, or even the striped legless lizard, which is an endangered species, and it is actually basically legless, but looks a bit like a snake, but it's a lizard. These will live, no, not necessarily live permanently, in, but they will sit in tussocks and wait for an insect going to go past or something to jump out on it. So it's sort of like a part of their environment that's pretty crucial to them. And you get a lot of small things like that living in tussocks. Then grass seeds, because our native grasses are pretty tough and can put on seed even in the drier years, and we have summer-growing native grasses much more than the introduced. A lot of our introduced grasses tend to be annual, winter-growing ones. So late summer, I get the red-browed finches flocks come into my front garden to grab the the grass seed that's ripening there. Those birds are pretty non-fussy they'll eat most grasses if the seeds there at the time but on a smaller scale a lot of our native grasses are pretty crucial habitat and food for caterpillars so something as small as a caterpillar that lives all its life on one plant most of them are very specifically adapted to only one species of plant so you know for something like a common native grass like kangaroo grass or common tussock grass each one of those will have a bunch of different butterfly and moth species that will only lay their eggs on that grass species. So once you lose those grasses from the landscape, which we have done in large areas of urban and farmland, then you lose the butterflies. And those butterflies, they could be pollinators for other plants, they're food for birds, etc. So you're taking big pieces out of the links that keep hold all the biodiversity together.
0: So I guess that's where we go wrong when people are sort of saying it doesn't matter what grass you use, you know, ev- all grasses have, you know, food services or, you know, all plants, whether they're a weed or not, you know, if they've got flowers, they're helping pollinators. Yes, but which pollinators, you know, because yes. there are going to be some that are getting left out.
1: That's right. And a lot of um, introduced plants are mainly visited by introduced honeybees, right? And then a lot of our native pollinators, of which there, there are thousands and thousands of them, not even all of them are even known they might some of them will quite happily use introduced plants and some of them are much more you know focused on the ones that their species is familiar with which are the native ones so yeah it it's it's worth keeping the natives going around your area absolutely you mentioned as well sort of that your
0: native lawn is a bit uneven because that's just the way that these native tussock grasses work Is that unevenness sort of providing habitat as well, as opposed to, you know, a perfectly level
1: turf? Yeah, it probably is because, I mean, it's that thing of like a tussock or even if it's in miniature and it's just a little tuft, it's sort of got that shade underneath and it's got a few old dead stems in the middle that sort of provide a bit of insulation and shelter and so on. And, you know, whereas a couch grass lawn that gets mowed down to within – you know a few millimeters of the ground, <laughs> and um there's not much of that there in it, you know, and I leave the dandelions mm. and whatever to comes up, so there's a bunch of them, so then you get all, you know native and introduced bees coming to feed on them and that sort of stuff so yeah it it's it's not like there's anything dangerous i I don't have fire ant nests like the poor mm. people in the u s have to deal with, <laughs> but it is a bit of a habitat. What about snakes? Yeah, well, snakes generally, they can show up anywhere, I guess, but they're generally lured by, if you have lots of mice, rats, frogs, that kind of thing, and they certainly will, can, you know, be camouflaged in long grass. It's something to look out for, particularly if you have dogs, kids, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I see snakes all the time at work. They're more scared of me than I am of them, even though I often jump six foot when I (laughs) Run into one unexpectedly and uh, they're very rare that they'll actually have a go at you. Mm. If you've got a dog, dogs, different situation with dogs, obviously, who will often have a go at the snake. So yeah, you you have to think about this and, you know, plan your garden for these sorts of things. So you're not, you know, if you, if you have problems with them, well, maybe you need to change it, but I I don't have any problems and I live very close to a river that I know has lots of snakes in it. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I would say that's something to keep in mind, particularly in Australia, if you're going to grow native clumping grasses as your lawn and you're not going to mow, probably just keep an eye on it. Um, but, you know, gardening is never really 100% safe.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah, you can get snakes in all sorts of gardens too. I mean, you know, open areas with lots of rocks, well, they like to bask on yeah. in the sun, don't they? <laughs> yeah, That's
0: true. And they can be just as camouflage on a rock as they can be sort of in the grasses as well.
1: Potentially, yeah. Hmm.
0: So, when we're talking about other benefits of grasses, I guess we can talk about below-ground benefits in terms of their roots. What what's going on there with native grasses below the ground? That's really good.
1: A lot of it's not so much to do with whether they're native or not, but if they're perennial, like they don't live just for through one less than one year, then they've got. And if they're quite large, if you don't mow them down to within an inch of the ground all the time they've got a chance, they grow a lot of leaves on top and they need to grow a lot of roots underneath to support that. So they'll get a pretty deep and thick mat of roots under the ground, which fills out the soil with all that carbon that they've dragged out of the air and put into the soil. So, I mean, on big, big landscape scales, that's actually pretty important to regulate the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and global warming and so on. But I mean, on on a local scale, it also helps a lot just to it aerates the soil, it puts organic matter in so you have better soil, it helps with water infiltration so rainfall doesn't run off as much and it soaks in, and, you know, that's all pretty good. I think the other thing is, not below ground, but weather-wise, I mean, people like find it fashionable at the moment, I think, to put in crushed rock gardens and Mm. even fake grass gardens, which... (laughs) They have their benefits. I mean, often it's because it's low maintenance, but they can look nice. But on a hot summer's day, mm-hmm. they can they you know they retain a lot of heat, whereas a a lawn is dragging out water out of the soil and letting it go just like trees do, and evaporating it through its leaves. That's how plants work. So then you get that cooling effect, like an evaporative air conditioner. So it's, I mean, you know, you don't have to have a lawn, and there's a bit of a fashion to get rid of them particularly among water-wise kind of gardening, but they can be quite water-wise. Native ones particularly don't need much water and they have these other benefits.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate the bad rap that grasses seem to be getting in popular culture at the moment. It sort of seems like people letting them go in favour of what they call flowering plants. I mean, grasses are actually flowering plants as well and yeah. they the ecological benefits just get forgotten.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, look, you can have a perfectly good garden with no grasses in it. I mean, you can have a perfectly good garden that's all roses if that's what you're into and if that's what makes you happy when you're gardening, go and do it. Go. But if you're a bit more open to trying different things, yeah, you could give native grasses a go.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. So what sort of preparation do we need to be thinking about when we're going to plant native grasses or even just grasses in particular? Is there a difference?
1: So, look, I mean for most of our native grasses that I've been talking about the two big things are weeds and soil fertility so weeds in this case can count includes all the other grasses that aren't the native grasses you're trying to grow and grasses set so much seed Pike. that yeah and Yeah, kikuyu, grass they're a nuisance. I mean, most gardeners find them a (laughs) nuisance, I think, but then they just keep popping up again. And so I actually just scraped off the topsoil to a couple of inches, use it for a veggie garden bed, and then reset. So that topsoil carried a lot of nutrients that native grasses don't really need, and it carried all the seed from the previous lawn that had been there, and the weeds and everything else, and I just got rid of it. That's quite a lot of work if you, particularly if a have a large area. But it's mm. really worth spending some time, even if you just sort of spray everything that comes up for a year or two before you plant your lawn. You know, mm-hmm. spray it with herbicide, that kind of thing, just so you can exhaust that seed bank that's in the soil. And a lot of those weeds, whether it's you know your flatweed, dandelion type things, or the Annual winter-growing grasses—they are very responsive to nutrients. So if you can get rid of the nutrients out of your soil, they are—they mm. will settle down a lot better. Um, and most of our native grasses really don't need much in the way of fertilising. They, in fact, some of them will die if you give them too much fertiliser.
0: Yeah, right. So what are some of the other ways that we can reduce the amount of nutrients in the soil if we can't afford to sort of pick up all of the topsoil and take it away?
1: Yeah, you could. So. Dig in pine bark, sh- shredded pine bark, wood chips, That even a bit of sawdust, that kind of thing. Or you, if you don't want to dig, you could do what I did today, which is also quite laborious, but in one area I look after, spreading sugar. Um, sugar dissolves and ru- runs into the soil. The other ones you actually have to dig in. But either way, you're adding a lot of carbon, which basically promotes a, a massive growth of Bacteria that eat carbon, and because they're growing, they grab all the other nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and so on that they need to grow, and they're not available to all those weeds. So the weeds are kind of starved. The slow-growing natives don't mind it that much because they're not that fast. And yeah, so those kinds of things, you know, we call that reverse fertilisation. That's that can help. It, it is really hard to hand weed or a lawn or to even to just to spray the weeds because you just keep getting the wrong ones and you can't find the weeds or you, or if you do, you end up pulling out the wrong thing and you, you know, or spraying the wrong bit and it's all rather awkward. So it is worth doing a lot of preparation first if you're going to have a lawn. But if you're just having some feature plants, it's much easier, just like any other plant. A few big tussocks with a bit of a space in between them, you can pull the weeds, you can mulch in between mm-hmm. them or whatever to suppress the weeds. And that's quite different.
0: Okay so the tussocks won't mind if there is the same amount of nutrients there as normal it's just that they have the upper hand in low nutrient
1: That's environments it. is that right Yes yeah. so they get they can even the big tussock grasses can really get smothered by fast growing annual weeds just cuz it's like the hare and the tortoise like
0: mm-hmm. but
1: then you know this is something that happens every year so the imagine the hare's running a relay and passing the baton on to the next generation mm regularly and the poor old natives always struggling and getting you know the weeds will take away the moisture out of the soil so it's not just nutrients it's also the moisture and they shade it so yeah it is worth doing some stuff like mulching if you have a garden bed full of big tussocks something like that to keep the weeds under control and after a few years you know the weeds don't come back nearly so bad because they're all spent
0: Mm, yeah totally and when you stop cultivating the soil too, I mean, that's going to help as well. You know, when, Every time you pull out a weed, you're sort of cultivating the soil a little bit, you know, yep. and, and they don't like, yeah, they, they seem to love that cultivated soil as well, I feel. I
1: yeah, find. very disturbance sort of mm. oriented. You, know, you create a bit of a bear patch, you expose some seed that was buried previously or whatever, and away they go again. Absolutely. So should we buy tube stock or should we spread seeds or does it depend? Yeah, it does depend. I mean, seed is, for native grasses, is actually pretty hard to get. It's not impossible to get. There's a couple of suppliers, but it's not cheap. On the other hand, if you want to do a large area or a lawn or something, it is really the way to go. So, you know, um, there's Seeding Victoria, which is our own network of seed banks, do have some grasses. It's not their specialty. There's a mob called Flora Victoria who actually sow it out for you on larger projects, Um, And there's nativeseeds.com where you can actually order packets of seed online for select species, including some of the ones I use in my lawn. I got off them and they work fine. Yeah. Cool. Tube stock is, look, the, the thing is, when you think about, you know, planting out those plants from those little forestry tubes, they're called forestry tubes because they were originally used for planting trees, right? Now, you might have 50 trees per hectare or something like that in a forest. But, you know, 50 trees, I can plant that in half a day easily, you know. You might have upwards of 10 plants per square metre, you know, in grasses, you know, you know, in a grassland. So trying to plant out that many, when you don't cover very much area. <laughs> so, you know, mm. think about what you're doing. What's the scale you're working at? And is it worth trying to find seed to do a bigger job? Or are you going to start off with getting a few dozen tube stocks for a feature, you know? So depends what you're trying to achieve. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I imagine that you'd have a problem with birds eating the seed if you just throw them out.
1: Yeah, we generally try to rake them in a bit so they get good soil contact. Yeah. They're not all obvious to the pigeons and whatever's out there eating them. Uh, it does depend a bit. I mean, some of our native seeds too, like spear grasses, have a sharp point, quite unpleasant, and a this big tail on them. A lot of the native <laughs> grasses have the big tail. It's called an awn in botany, and it'll sort of twist around as it gets wet and dry. and that. Moves the seed and burrow, helps it burrow into the ground and wriggle across the ground till it finds a good spot to germinate. So yeah, you some of them will do it, a bit of the job for you if you give them a few hours out in the sun and rain. Some of them, yeah, you really got to rake them in. Hmm. So what about when you've got the grasses already established?
0: They're growing. They're growing flowers. You know, they're going to seed. Yep. What are the chances of those seeds sort of uh, propagating new plants via sexual propagation?
1: Pretty good. So, from the little I've read on the topic, most of our native grasses are self-pollinating or capable of self-pollinating. Grasses are wind-pollinated anyway, so even if they're not, they just need another grass of the same species somewhere upwind to drop a bit of pollen on them. They're wild plants; they haven't been inbred for generations to look a particular way, so they are very fertile. They will produce seed quite well. Having said that, some things like kangaroo grass do seem to be, yeah, that. They they're slow to germinate. It might take a couple of years before the seed germinates. They seem to have this sort of period of dormancy, and it you know you can feel like you're getting nowhere. Then then a few years later you go back to a site and it's just changed, you know, because they all came up at last. So it, it, there is a bit of that. It, it is worth letting them grow tall and grow to seed, if only to let them grow that big deep root system. If you keep right. cutting the leaves off, they'll never need a big root system because they don't have a lot of roots to support and you, you won't get that effect.
0: So you need to leave them alone if they're going to sort of develop those great big root systems.
1: Yeah. So for my back lawn, you know, I, I just figure, you know, most of it goes to seed in late spring, thereabouts. So I let it let it grow tall and rank and you know, it's a bit messy, you know. Then I come and might harvest some of the seed and spread it around somewhere else, and I'll then I'll give it a good clip after that.
0: So how, first of all, I'm sure your neighbours love you because neighbours are always <laughs> totally in tune with ecology and they know, yeah,
1: <laughs> they know that, exactly what you're doing. I'm sure they all think I'm <laughs> mad, but I don't care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's why you've got all the little brown birds. That's right. so. <laughs> So we I'm guessing you mow it quite high. would that assumption be right?
1: yeah, so I generally not try not I actually use a whipper snipper on it just because I don't have a mower and it's not a very large area. can't really justify getting a mower i don't try try to keep no no shorter than about two centimetres,
0: okay, yep,
1: some of the grasses will. The, this is for the, the low-growing lawn-type grasses. For your bigger tussocks, probably don't take them below about 10 centimetres or certainly not below five anyway. Right. Because basically what it is is where are the growing points, the buds on that grass? So for a cooch grass, a lot of them are below ground, so you can you can mow as low as you like <laughs> with a cooch grass lawn. Mm. But for a lot of these, the, they're at ground level or a bit above it or they're up in that tussock somewhere. So usually in the bottom part of it, not the top. But, um, you know, if, if you have things like cattle and sheep that'll graze stuff down to the ground, or if you mow it too low, you can lose these. And that's why we've actually lost native grasses from large areas, by and large, is just, right. you know, they, they're not adapted to that particular kind of defoliation. They like to keep their tussocks above a certain height.
0: Mm.
1: So this is not safe
0: for anybody at home to just try this. And you're going to need a lot of, basically training and you're going to need to know what you're doing, but as an ecologist and somebody who's trained to work with these native grasses, what are your thoughts on burning?
1: Yeah, burning is what naturally sort of resets our native grasslands and grassy woodlands so that after a few years, a grass builds up all the dead leaves from the past years and they start to get in the way of new growth. And in fact, they can pretty much smother themselves with the old dead growth. So Putting a fire through, if it's at the right time and if it's you know not too not too hot and dry and whatever, it'll burn off all that, and then you can just brush away the ash and you see the the new buds underneath ready to grow again. If you do it when it's too hot, you can scorch them and might might kill some of them, but they're pretty tough and they generally come back. So we do this a lot in native grasslands, as a you know every one, two, three years, depending on the site and the you know what what you're aiming for, and that that really helps them, and it. Has a minor effect of getting rid of some of the weeds, but it just helps the native plants grow and it creates spaces in between them where all the native flowers come up too. So it that's not necessarily applicable in your home garden. But I do burn off my big tussocks occasionally and it the, you know, it's the effects are not much different really from just giving them a good clip with a brush cutter or a whippersnipper. Right.
0: So I've seen a video that you posted recently of some of the tussocks that you've burnt. And what had happened was the dry stuff had burnt away. And because, you know, we're doing this very carefully, we're not just letting a wildfire <laughs> rage through. This is very yep. gentle, you know, it's quite, quite easy going. And then you just sort of pushed back some of the ash and you could see the tender buds. And, you know, those tender buds are obviously not as flammable as the drier stuff that's already been spent.
1: That's right. And, you know, we can burn at any time of year if you've got a day that's not raining, you know, it's dry enough. And, um, the fuel's dry enough, and you've got that dead grass. Green green, growing grass generally doesn't burn unless you have extreme fire weather, right, that'll dry it out enough in mm-hmm. front of the flames that it'll then catch fire. But mostly our fires go out when they hit the gray, green growing grass because we don't mm-hmm. burn in extreme fire danger. We burn in cool weather. Mm-hmm. And that means, yeah, so whatever's growing is generally protected and you get rid of all the old, the thatch we call it, the dead dead stuff, it works quite well, yeah.
0: Mm. So you mentioned, you know, when when we're cultivating the land to plant these grasses, we want to get rid of as much nutrients as possible. Are yep. we also avoiding fertilizing on our regular maintenance of these plants?
1: Yeah, they don't need it. It, it won't benefit them. It'll benefit the weeds. So just don't bother. Mm. Uh, there are like weeping grass. If you have a dog, you will notice little brown patches where the dog went for a pee it that's how, how much it dislikes right. fertilizer nitrogen in particular i'm guessing most of them aren't that sensitive but they really don't need it much at all yeah save your
0: money cuz fertilizers aren't always cheap especially if you buy the organic ones like um i like emulsified fish and yep. you know
1: it all adds up doesn't it it does yeah and it's time that you got to put it out and whatever yeah So we talked about soil
0: conditions, and I guess we've sort of also talked about how native grasses tend to do well in tough conditions like that poor soil quality and low water environments. But can you speak on how every species has their own preferences and how native grasses tend to do in what we would normally call bad conditions?
1: Yeah, well, bad conditions could be a number of things. There could be salt in the soil. There could be, it could be just very, very low nutrients there might not be very much soil at all. It might be just a a, a thin layer of it over rocky ground on on a ridge line, you know. So different native grasses will do better or worse in each of those. So your big poa lab tussocks, they like creek flats where it's, you know, there's usually a bit of moisture and it's deep and relatively rich soil. And then, you know, they'll grow on south facing slopes. On those dry ridge tops, you might find in some low forest with not much nutrients at all you know there's other kinds of wallaby grasses and spear grasses that might be loving it there and they don't have much competition at all so they do great so yeah there really is i mean you you have to do a bit of research to work out what's best where you are but there is certainly things that are suited to very diverse soil types and climates and so-
0: absolutely so you mentioned a few places that our listeners can buy seeds earlier, but can you tell us where where do you recommend Melbourneian listeners head for good native grass stock? And I'd like you to re-mention those options yep. as well because some people might just be thinking, okay, I need to write that down now. We will have links in the show notes, but can you just go over the best places in Melbourne to buy native grasses?
1: Yeah, so look, if you go online, you can order seed from Seeding Victoria. Which are our native seed banks, and you look at their, you can look at their catalogue online, and they do have some grass seed usually. You can also go to nativeseeds.com, which I have a much narrower range, but they reliably sell grass seed for lawns and for pasture and that sort of thing. If you want to buy your plants in pots, like forestry tubes and so on, and perhaps get a slightly wider range than is available at some of the from the seed places. You want to look up indigenous nurseries, these will generally have a selection of the, the the common the grasses that do well in their area that are native to their area that's what indigenous means so they're native plants, but they're indigenous to that area, not just to somewhere in australia and that's and there's these there's, they're scattered across Melbourne and a few out in country Victoria. I really don't know the eastern suburbs well, but in where I'm familiar with in the west and north, I can think of. Vink, Victorian Indigenous Nursery Cooperative in Fairfield. There's the Latrobe University Wildlife Sanctuary has a good nursery up at Bandura. There's the Grasslands Nursery out at the Newport Lakes. So there's I'm pretty sure there is a co-op in St Kilda. I don't know if they're still going. There's others out further east that I, I've never been to, and they're all good. And you, you go to your nearest one basically.
0: Hmm. So we're basically sport for choice in Melbourne, really, from the sounds of it.
1: Uh, There's a few. I wouldn't say there's uh, hundreds, (laughs) but uh, yeah, you should be able to get to one at some point, maybe after lockdown, but yeah. Do you think that people are becoming more
0: interested or less interested in native grasses sort of in 2021?
1: I think it's very mixed. Like, obviously, it's, I mean, you know, being, being a botanist is a bit weird. Being a botanist who's really interested in grasses is exceptionally weird. But um <laughs> but people do sort of get it to some degree. You know, you look at like the TV satire Utopia had a couple of episodes where they're talking oh, about grasslands being shrink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's it's my favorite horror movie. <laughs> um <laughs> but you know, out in the suburbs where grasslands are being bulldozed to make the suburbs, you actually do get quite a lot of people who have worked worked out what's going on and they're very keen to pr- protect their local grasslands. So that are left, the ones that have been set aside as a little reserve or whatever. Those are the places where I usually end up for work. And yeah, so there is some awareness. It it really could be better. I mean, one of the things that people really need to realize is that native grasslands, which are pretty much treeless, just native grasses and herbs and wildflowers, that was the reason why Whitefella come to Victoria because the, we had heaps of it and it was great. You could just let the sheep go and you didn't have to do anything and pretty soon the sheep kind of wrecked it all. But um, <laughs> for the grasses and for the Indigenous people who lived here previous to that, well, I don't still do, but yeah. But, you know, there's very little actual native grassland left. A lot of it that is left is kind of, a bit crappy it's overrun with weeds it's a lost a lot of the more spectacular species and it's just struggling um there's less than 1% left probably in any reasonable wow. condition uh, of what they used to be so you know it is a highly endangered environment it still keeps getting destroyed by developers putting in new suburbs or whatever they just pay for an offset and mm-hmm. so on and so yeah it is worth considering and thinking well we don't want it all gone forever cuz once it's gone it's gone forever pretty much. It's hard to recreate, especially if the species go extinct. Yep,
0: absolutely. Especially, you know, when those supportive organisms aren't there too. You know, you get rid of the plants. Okay, so we got the seeds, we'll bring them in later, but the insects aren't there anymore, and this, that, yeah. and the other aren't there, and the
1: predators and the rest. All of our grasslands would have been filled with, what do you call them, bandicoots and right. betongs and these digging marsupials and, you know, and things like that, which are just are virtually extinct on the mainland in a lot of cases. Or, you know, there's still bandicoots around, but they're very limited range. So, yeah, the the, the actual dynamics of these environments before, you know, whitefellas, sheep, foxes, cats, rabbits, etc. it would have been very different, and it's, it's pretty hard to get a picture of it. But they were beautiful, full of wildflowers and life and all sorts of animals. And, yeah, we're slowly recreating some of that here and there. Still pretty hard to get the animals back, though.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I was speaking with
0: a cattle farmer called Gillian Fennell in episode 20, and she was saying diff one of the differences between sheep and cattle is that sheep have bottom teeth and they'll bite the grass off down the bottom like a pair of shears, whereas cattle will wrap their tongue around and rip it out.
1: Is that something you're familiar with? I I actually didn't. The the bit I didn't know was that cattle don't have bottom teeth. (laughs) (laughs) It's either bottom or top, but, and I've, because my parents
0: have cattle. Yeah, and it's true. You put the hand in in their mouth, and yeah, they they got gums. Yeah. They'll gum you, but they can't bite you.
1: But they, I know they do rip <laughs> it out with their tongue. Yeah, look. From what I understand, in grasslands, the sheep are particularly bad for getting rid of some of the herbs because they've got a metabolism and a gut that can really that can handle a very wide diet. Whereas, I mean, mm-hmm. cattle are kind of like lawnmowers, but they more stick to grasses and whatever they accidentally grab with the grass. So they they both have a pretty strong effect on our native grasslands if you overgraze, if you don't graze lightly and carefully. But it, between cattle and sheep, it will be a slightly different effect from one to the other, I'm sure. Mm.
0: And I'm sure that the heavier cattle are probably compacting soil on another level.
1: And- yes. Yeah. So, And there are grazing techniques that are great for conservation developed in Africa where they've always had big, heavy hard-hoofed grazing animals. And people here, I mean, my own brother are working on how we can apply those here and getting apparently getting some good results. But I am curious to see, you know, are they getting good results for grazing or are they getting good results mm-hmm. for the native grassland as well? And, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So part of this podcast is that we like to show opposing views. So it's like, yeah, I love cattle and I love beef and I think it's a great way to you know, produce calories and to feed people. But at the same time, yeah, you know, we have to look at the other side as well and say, well, what's happening to our native grasses? I know that my dad tries his best to do native grasses, but there are some grasses the cattle won't eat. So he doesn't really, you know, it's like he has his patch with the kangaroo grasses, but he doesn't really want the kangaroo grasses in the main paddocks.
1: Yeah. My dad has a few cows on his property and the same thing. He says they don't, just don't eat the kangaroo grass. It might be partly to do with which breed of cows you have or the okay. the stage of growth of the kangaroo grass that you put the cows in that paddock. So th- there could be ways to use that kangaroo grass and it might not mind the, that sort of now and then heavy grazing and then give it time to recover. I don't know for sure, but yeah. But yes, it is difficult and you can't always have that win-win where you get to keep the grazing and the native species, there is a place for just setting aside conservation reserves in some cases. Yes,
0: absolutely agree. And large areas too, not just small areas.
1: Yeah. A lot of our urban grassland reserves are sort of in the order of a hectare or a couple of hectares if you're lucky. Whereas, you know, the sort of range you need for some of the native animals that would have lived in these places, they can't live in one hectare they need many <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so mm.
0: well we can't turn back the clock ben but we can you know we're just going to take our wins where we can get them
1: that's right we, we can fix some of the damage and we can improve things so ben is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about anything else anything hmm. this is my most
0: open-ended <laughs> question and you can talk about anything
1: well people may have heard of the indigenous author bruce pascoe who wrote a famous and somewhat controversial book called Dark Emu and he's been using native grasses as grain on his property and he was trying to use kangaroo grass which mystifies me because I never it set, set much seed this far south in at least and you really have to grow a lot of ground to get much of a harvest but then he got weeping grass the one I have in my lawn and oh, he calls it dancing grass I'm pretty sure he's talking about the same thing and he's got a great harvest after the fires apparently and um was a, I think he sold some of it to a brewery who are then turning it into malt to make beer from native grass. So there's, a, there's a possibly quite a big future in this because you think about it, they're drought-hardy, tough grasses. They're perennial, so you don't have to re-sow them every year. And if we can crack how to get enough grain off them and in what conditions that'll happen, it might not be as much as you get from a wheat crop, but these could be actually a pretty important part of our food future as well yeah if we don't ignore them and drive them into obscurity in forgotten little corners of the country
0: mm. so if we can provide a win-win situation for people who own land who want to get a profit from it but also you know we can provide ecological services there too so that's a win-win
1: it needs a lot of work to get the, get it happening and to work out how to do it but it could could work so yeah fingers crossed
0: mm. thanks so much for coming on the show ben that was an awesome episode man
1: You're welcome. I enjoyed it and I hope listeners get something out of it. There's more to grasses than just lawns, you know. I hope this episode has
0: inspired you to think outside the box a bit and see if you can find a nice spot for a few beautiful indigenous grass species in the next garden you're working in. As always, check the show notes for relevant links, including to the resources Ben mentioned for sourcing native grasses in Victoria. If you found value in this episode, chances are there's someone you know who could also benefit. So don't be selfish. Share this episode around and we can shine a much needed spotlight on these beautiful native Australian plants, which can sometimes be forgotten about. you down as an ecologist botanist and bush regenerator
1: that sounds about right i um yeah i we look after conservation reserves which can involves the very simple stuff like spraying weeds planting out plants building fences to keep rabbits out and up to botanical surveying and reporting and so on so that's my job basically i the contractor i work for does work for a number of councils mainly and occasionally for Parks, Vic, and others, but mostly around central Victoria, up in the Ranges, Macedon Ranges area, down into the western suburbs of Melbourne a bit.